Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Our Shelves, a podcast where writers from the legendary feminist publishing house Virago talk about their cultural worlds. We'll be diving into these writers' bookshelves, record collections, and recollections to discover what inspires them. I'm Lucy Scholes, and my guest today is Stella Duffy. Stella has written 17 novels, over 70 short stories, and 14 plays. She has twice won Stonewall Writer of the Year and twice won the CWA short story Dagger. In addition to her writing work, Stella is a theatre maker and the co-director of the UK-wide Fun Palaces campaign for culture at the heart of the community. She was awarded the OBE in 2016 for services to the arts. Welcome to Our Shelves, Stella. It's really lovely to have you here today with us. Thank you, Lucy. Well, to be honest with you, that's a pretty impressive bio. You kind of put the rest of us to shame, I think. It left out, left out the fact that I'm a newly trained yoga teacher and trained to be an existential psychotherapist. Um, right, make me feel bad. Don't you? <laughs> yeah, I'm nearly 58, though. You know, you've, you've got to have done something by the time you get to heading to your late 50s. Well, I think we're going to talk a little bit more about the yoga later when we get to some mm. of the questions. But before we get started on those, I want to ask you a little bit about your writing work more generally. Um, and I'm quite curious because you're a writer who moves seemingly incredibly effortlessly between these different genres that you that you work in, whether you're writing crime or historical fiction to contemporary set novels. And each of them is so rich and you, you create these worlds which you can kind of fall into. Um, and I just am very interested in, in how do you know where you're going to go next do you find that each project is sparked by something different or can you see connections you know between these works that maybe the rest of us can't see so readily um a bit of both now that there are 17 books I, I can see what someone said when I think I'd only written about seven or eight that that they're all about families I didn't I didn't think that um I certainly didn't know when there were only seven or eight and not just uh, blood families, families of choice as well, queer families, families of outsiders, um, families who don't necessarily, you know, fit the, the nuclear stereotype. Um, I didn't know that then. I do think that shows up a lot now. And mm. so, for example, in the two Theodora novels, um, which are two of my historical novels, that's absolutely about the family of Theodora and Justinian. Um the Emperor and Empress of Rome or last Emperor and Empress of Rome or first Emperor and Empress of, of the Byzantine. But she didn't have children. I mean, so it's a family of people they make around themselves. Mm. So, and I think that that's true of my, so uh, I think there's six crime novels. I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> I mean, it, it's certainly very true of uh, London Lies Beneath, which is my um which is a Virago novel, as it, as it is of The Hidden Room, which is a Virago crime novel. So, and Lullaby's Beach is another historical, and it's really true of Lullaby Beach. And I, I genuinely didn't know this when I started, or and I didn't perceive it in my work. 
I think they're all about secrets and I do think they're all about lies. I am fairly passionate about the danger of lies. So um, not that not that we have to be over truthful all the time <laughs> and, and hurt people or, or be brusque or brutal with our truths. But I do think lies can be really damaging. And so I think they always really interest me. Lies and secrets really interest me. Well, I mean, those are at the heart of your new novel, aren't they? Mm. Lullaby Beach, which Virago has just published, um, which I read avidly this past weekend. So thank you for the pleasure. And it's incredibly um it's incredibly sort of well woven together, I think, and, and you know, beautiful book, sometimes actually very heartbreaking. Um, and it is an exploration of secrets and lies and shame that reverberates yeah. through the different generations of women in a single family who are living in a particular seaside town. Um, and I suppose, you know, yeah, building on that, there's something, what you were just saying about secrets and what they can do if you, if you hide them, lies if you don't, you know, there's things that you don't tell people to kind of try and save them from something, mm-hmm. but then these tend to fester in a particular way that can be quite harmful in the long run. Um, but also, I suppose, going back to what you're saying about um, sort of families that you build around yourselves, yeah. one of the things that I particularly enjoyed about Lullaby Beach was and, and found most interesting, I think, is the way that you sort of buck the trend a little bit. And rather than emphasizing mother and daughter relationships through the ages, you're looking at um, different types of family yeah. relationships between women, whether it's aunts and their nieces or great nieces and mm. sibling relationships. And I'd love it if you could tell me a little bit about where the particular attraction for, for that lay for you. Well, I'm the youngest of seven children. I'm an infertile woman. I had, um, I've had cancer twice and the chemotherapy I had for breast cancer in my thirties made me infertile. Um, I genuinely don't think that the, we only understand love and family relationships by giving birth or Mm. adopting. I think that we can understand love and family relationships through the diagonal relationships as well. And I have, 15 nieces and nephews and 15 yeah well I'm the youngest of seven right and they all just had loads of kids and I've got 31 I think it's 31 great nieces and nephews so um the youngest he's just turned three and oh no 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 the youngest is not quite one and the oldest is 27 so I you know I was five years old when when one of my elder sisters had had her first baby so I have always been in this mix this melange of family where um the the sort of hierarchy of we belong to this set and you belong to that set never quite worked some of my nieces are absolutely closer to my age than I am to their mothers who are my sisters but similarly I have a sibling relationship with my sisters one of whom is 17 and a half years older than me could have been my mother that is both a maternal daughter relationship, but a very strong sister relationship. And I have similar versions of that with with my nieces and nephews and great relationships with with some of my great nieces and nephews. So for me, that's my personal experience, you know, and I don't see that in writing. I only see the traditional family. And I certainly don't see families like mine either, really big ones. I don't see working class families very often in fiction. Um, and I really wanted to write a book that that championed those relationships, actually, that championed aunts and nieces, because mm. my relationships with my nieces 
are fantastic. They have had huge problems. I'm not saying they've always been amazing. In a similar way that mother-daughter relationships can have, there have been real difficulties with some of them, and we've come through and formed great, great relationships. And I see these relationships as being very profound and very important to my life. So, yeah, it was it was kind of really special to write about that. And I have one brother and five sisters, so the sister relationship is pretty hot in my life. Um, and so I really wanted to write about sisters as well. Well, I think you do it beautifully. And that, I, I think that was what I was really taken aback by, that it was only when I was reading the novel that I suddenly realised, I don't think I've seen this kind of relationship between an aunt and a, right. and a niece or, you know, sisters maybe a little bit more so, but sort of aunt, the aunt niece or the aunt and great niece, um, great aunt, great niece relationship yeah. explored with such kind of depth and such attention to the love and the support and also the complications around it. You explore how the, you know, a child's mother is quite jealous of the relationship that her child has with that mother's sister and yeah. these sort of crossovers that are going on. And I presume, yeah, now you, you know, talk about your own family. I can imagine there's tensions and fraughtness. And yeah, we're, all too, we're all too old for, to have any fraughtness now. I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm nearly 58 and I'm the youngest. So we're way too old for that. But of course we have had. And yeah. And I, I do, I think that's something really special about the, and the diagonal relationships mm. that is different and amplified by the up and down relationships, you know, on a family tree. So it was really, I loved writing about that. That was, that was one of the easy parts in this book. There were lots of parts that weren't easy, but that was one of the easy parts. Well, it's beautifully done. I'm sure people very much appreciate it for that. But it also brings me a little bit to our first question. We always ask our guests to tell us about a couple of books that are currently on their bedside mm -hmm. tables. And one of the books you've chosen for that is um, called Living the Life Unexpected, which is, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about this. It, it does tie in with what you're saying about families and making your own families. Yeah, it? so Jodie Day is the founder of Gateway Women, which is an amazing organisation supporting women who are childless or child-free, depending mm -hmm. on which word suits you, um, infertile or childless by choice. So it's it's the wide range of women who might not have children, but we live in a pronatalist society, a society that not only wants us to have children, but assumes we do and that there is something wrong with us or something lacking or something outside about us when we don't. Um, and People, people don't have children for very many reasons. And the number of people who are not having children is becoming greater. Mm. But those of us who don't still feel very, very keenly, I think, our place outside of the normal paradigm. Um, and Jodie has done phenomenal work with Gateway Women, but she's also written this great book, Living the Life Unexpected, which is about the concept of, of not being a mother. And not being a father too, because there's this work around, around, um, around how, how it is for men. But she's also got some great suggestions. And this is based on, on her work and how it was for her, how it's been with the women that she's worked with, the men that she's worked with. Um, we've done a, a, you know, she does, does some great podcasts, some really good um, live online events that we've done this year. Um, last year, it's 2021. <laughs> <laughs> already, right? Um, and... And I just really like her work because I like, she has a passion for acknowledging how it is. So for very many of us, for me, infertility was extremely painful and has and continues to be so. A dear friend of mine had her second grandchild this weekend. I'm never getting that. That is never happening in my life. 
And it is different to my relationship with my greats, who are fantastic, but I'm never getting that up and down line that you get from your own biology being passed on. And so Jodie's done amazing work around how it is for those of us who feel it as a loss. She's done amazing work around the people who feel it not as a loss, but are told it's a loss by society. And what I love about this work is the inclusion in it. So um, I did some work with her so she could put this in. So it's also acknowledging that queer people experience this too, because far too often childlessness, child freeness, infertility, the not being of a parent is only talked about as if it belongs to heterosexual people. And those of us who are queer also live with us. And in fact, people who are queer of my generation, for many of us, it was almost an expectation that our coming out meant we had to give up the possibility of having children. So, you know, so I love that that is paid attention to in this book. And it's just, I mean, it's a great book, but it's also got some good tips and it's all, it's all very well to say things are hard, but what you want from something that says things are hard is maybe try this. This worked for somebody, maybe try that. It's a really valuable book. That's sort of fascinating as well because, I, I, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying completely. There's such a, I don't have children myself and I, I don't um, intend to have them. And, and yet there's a, there is a, I feel like I'm living in a world where there's a lot of emphasis on that being a kind of lack and something I have to explain to people uh-huh. all the time, you know, and that, that sort of sense. Yeah. And so, but I feel like there has been, there's, I feel like there's been a bit of a push recently to try and maybe slightly try and explain this a little bit more to look into the reasons behind why people are deciding not to have children, um, you know, and how you go about living in a, you know, living as a child-free person. But at the same time, I don't think I've come across mm-hmm. a book which actually given sort of hints and tips how to go about that <laughs> in your life. So this sounds quite fascinating. <laughs> well, it is. And I mean, you know, and also the possibility of making a choice to be child-free in a planet that is dying and that having more babies isn't going to save. You know, it's a really valuable choice, Lucy, and yet it is talked about as if it is a lack, not a positive choice. And that's because we live in a, you know, a rampantly pronatalist world. And I didn't know the word pronatal until about two years ago, and that's another thing I have Jodie to thank for. And you've got another book that you'd like to talk about, uh, which I think links into uh, your work in, what do you call yourself? Are you a yoga, you've got to tell me the right terminology, you're you're training at the moment, aren't you? Well, I've trained, I've done the 200 hours, which is the basic training to be a qualified yoga teacher, which I am. Um, But I trained to teach yoga, not because I want to be a yoga teacher, but because for decades now, when I occasionally teach writing, so I probably, well, in the old days when we were allowed to go places, I taught an Avon course every couple of years. Um, and, I, and I came to writing from theatre. I came to writing as an improviser. And my background was in dance and physical theatre. So to me, writing is a physical activity. And what I'm now teaching, I've done a couple of workshops, and I've got another one coming up later this month, um, is a workshop in yoga for writing. So that it's, I mean, yes, it is how to not have bad shoulders and sore wrists, but yeah. it's much more than that. It's about, it's about using yoga poses, asana, to flow into writing exercises because we write off the body. You know, even I'm thinking of a friend of mine with MS who these days is pretty much a talking head and he still writes from his body. He uses voice software and he has to move his body, his mouth, to speak, to write. 
I write on a computer, but I write with my hands. I move, even as we talk, I'm moving my hands around. I, when I write dialogue, I say it. I say it with my mouth as I type it. So we write off the body, and yet quite often as writers, we are encouraged to behave as if writing only happens in the head. And I really don't believe it does. I really believe it's an embodied practice. And so the reason I went and did a yoga teacher training was so that I could bring these two things together. And I'm currently training to add to that in Yoga Nidra, which is meditative. Say that fast. Meditative. <laughs> meditative. <laughs> Keep the mistakes in. It makes me sound far more human. Um, meditatively uh, yoga. And it's Nidra means sleep and it's yogic sleep. So you don't fall asleep while you're doing it. You're encouraged to stay awake. But it's about paying attention to the breath. It's about paying attention to the body. So it works really well with writing work. And this is by um, Richard Miller. And I really like his writing around yoga, partly because I'm also training to be a psychotherapist. And he's done work on yoga nidra for PTSD. And to go back to the book, you know, Lullaby Beach does also have a lot in it about abuse and um the, the me too work and about sexual abuse and coercive control and how that gets passed down generationally as well our expectations around relationships and so coming from a, a growing up i grew up in a family that, that had a lot of violence in it and a lot of difficulties as well as a lot of love and um so for me using yoga both physical and emotionally and meditatively to deal with trauma is a fantastic way to use a you know really ancient technique to deal with stuff that we've got going on today on that point it might be a strange question but um Mm. writing about abuse in lullaby beach i assume that sort of took a toll on you while you were having to write you know i think you mentioned briefly earlier some of the some of writing of the book was very pleasurable and enjoyable and i imagine the harbors you talked about were probably the sections that deal with the abuse suffered by the characters Um, And is there a link, do you find, is there some kind of way that you then need to unwind or kind of get rid of that sort of tension after you've done that writing? Um, Yes, I recommend therapy. Uh, Not because, not just because I'm trained to be a therapist, but also, (laughs) I mean, yes. (laughs) I mean, I, I didn't. I mean, this was a really hard book for lots of reasons. One is I'm an idiot and I set it in three different time periods. And frankly, without the help of uh, both of my editors, I'm really lucky there were two, I had huge input in trying to bring together these three time periods so they flowed. I think it works really well now. And I'm really, really grateful to all of their work with me. But, um, you know, if, if you're a, a newish writer listening, don't do it. Just don't do it. Three time periods is too hard. Stick with two or one. <laughs> Nothing wrong with one. Um, anyway, so there was te- technically it was really difficult to bring it together. And I do think it works now, but blindly it was difficult. Um, emotionally, it was very hard. I think like a lot of women of my generation, I have, you know, my own amount of um, horrible things that have happened in sexual relationships and horrible things that have happened in other relationships and friendships and family relationships. And some of them, they're not my story, but some of the attitudes, some of the experiences, some of the feelings, certainly some of the shame are things that I drew on to write this novel. Um, And I wanted to, partly because I think that Me Too has been very useful. I mean, really, I don't want to downplay it at all. However, 
it has tended to focus on, or at least the media has focused on the famous people. The media has focused on the the famous women. And that has allowed some of it to also be dismissed. You know, this kind of attitude with, with, oh, well, she got a great job. What's she complaining about? Or she got loads of money. Why, Why does she mind? Or she's got everything. How hard can it have been? Whereas, A, I don't believe that's true. I believe it takes a toll on us, whoever we are. Um, but B, the swathe of women who have suffered sexual and emotional abuse in relationships, it's just vast. And I wanted to write about ordinary women that this has happened to, normal women who who may well have been in love with the abuser, because that's really common too. You know, coercive control, we've got a title for it now, but we didn't used to. And I I wanted to write about how that is and the really extra complex shame that comes when when we realise that we've also not gone along with it, not been complicit, but in some way enabled the abuser because we loved them, because we couldn't see a way out, because it was where we were in our lives at that time. And that's so hard. And so, yeah, some of it's mine. I mean, emotionally, rather. I don't think I've ever written any practical things that have happened to me in novels, but I've certainly drawn on my emotions. I don't know how else I could write. I mean, I I never know what people are talking about when they say, oh, no, it's got nothing to do with me. I'm like, really? <laughs> how, do you, how? Because I live in the world and I feel things. And... And sometimes I make choices that a character would never make, you know, or I give a character a choice that I would never make. And that's how I know it's of me as well, because they're choosing something that I would never choose to do. Um, I can only write from myself. That's not my experience, but it's my understanding and my truth. Um, so, yeah, it, it was really tough. And I, I noticed that when I finished, I think this had a good four edits. I mean, this was with editors, let alone the half dozen I do before anyone sees it. But by the time by the time I was through the final edit, yeah, it had taken a toll on me. Um, I think it's useful that it's a short novel and that there are some really joyous and I think um, salving scenes in it as well because there are some really dark oh, places yeah. that it goes to. Um, and I wanted to have a balance and I think that had it been a much longer novel, the balance would have been too dark. And the heaviness would have been too heavy. Well, I think, I mean, as a reader, I found that those some of the darker moments were almost darker because they were interspersed with these moments of, you know, of lightness between characters of, of intense sort of familial love or and hope. And, you know, the lasting impression I have when I came away from that book was not of feeling sort of brought low by their experiences, but seeing, you know, these women get through their experiences and become stronger for it which it's not you yeah. know I know that sounds like a cliche but in the best possible way let's say yeah I mean okay so so I've had cancer twice and one of the things I find really frustrating about having a major illness is this idea that you know what doesn't kill you makes you stronger well for some of us what doesn't kill us really knocks us down and we can learn from it so and you know, so I'm training in existential psychotherapy specifically. And one of the more famous existentialists is Viktor Frankl. And Frankl famously wrote Man's Search for Meaning after he'd been in Auschwitz, after his wife was killed, after his in utero baby was killed, after so many in his family were murdered in the Holocaust. And 
what what he found was that it is possible to find meaning in the darkest and meanest places and that the meaning might be tiny. I mean, there's a lovely scene in Man's Search for Meaning where just a, a character, I can't even remember if it's a sunrise or a sunset, but, you know, people are dying all around and it's horrendous, utterly horrendous. He's not saying it's not. But the sun, the sunrise or the sunset is beautiful. It's also beautiful. And so he talks about finding the moments within the darkest, darkest times and finding meaning in those moments. And I think, I, you know, I'm not saying I'm Victor Frankl, um, but I, I hope that that's what I've done with my writing about dark stuff. Not to say, oh, we all come through it and it's fine in the end. Because, you know, the character of Kitty, she is damaged by her experiences. Yeah. And they, they physically and emotionally. And I, and I try to be very clear about that. And, but I also tried to write her spirit, you know, this fantastic 1950s youthful spirit. It's still there in this woman in her 80s. Yeah. And yeah. that spirit's not gone and she has experienced what she's experienced. So it's, it's not either or, it's both and. Yeah, being able to hold the two things separately, but at the same time, right? Like you can have that damage, yeah. but you can also have that that sort of hope, or that way of moving forward and recognizing the good yes. at the same time, which is a yeah. hard thing to do, I think. You know. Well, on a slightly lighter note, perhaps, um, mm. I asked you to think about a recent TV series that you've been watching, yes. and I'm very happy with your pick. What What are you going to talk about next? Oh, uh, I love Bridgerton. Okay, and. <laughs> <laughs> I so so the reason I watch Bridgerton is because my very old friend Adjua Ando is playing I think it's Lady Danbury I've probably even got the character wrong because I'm just sitting there going no, no, oh she, look it's Adge it's Adge being brilliant yeah, she's great she's wonderful and she's amazing so Adge lives up the road from me we were in a play together we were when we were in our 30s um her kids went to the school over the road from our house I've known them most of their lives um she's just a phenomenal actor, a phenomenal political woman, and what's and she's done amazing work for decades. But I'm I'm quite you know sort of getting this vicarious thrill of a friend of mine being massively successful and a huge Netflix phenomena. You know, um, so I love that. Also, oh my God, the costumes. Um, <laughs> so, but the reason I love Bridgerton, I mean, I really enjoyed it for loads of you know, pretty flighty reasons. It looks beautiful. It was absolutely enjoyable and good fun. And I, and I, you know, when I was a kid, I loved Jean Plady and Georgette Heyer, and that's what it's doing. Yeah. But the politics of casting a young, good-looking black man as the romantic lead, a guy who would never get cast in Downton, right? Because they would go, oh, no, it's not authentic. Yeah, that's right. So Maggie Smith making yet another quip is authentic. You know, I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, Maggie Smith's fantastic, but, you know, I don't think a Dowager Duchess makes that many quips. Um, authenticity, you know, has been to blame for an awful lot of exclusion. Authenticity mm -hmm. has been the way that we have cut out people of colour from the arts in Britain for millennia, literally millennia. You know, authenticity, 
<laughs> makes me rage because it's only ever used by those in power to say you stay out. It's how people mm. kept women off stage for, for centuries. So what I love about Bridgerton is when, yeah, meh, authenticity, whatever, let's just cast some amazing people and play with it. And so what is so thrilling is it's just a really good romp that's yes. doing all this other stuff as well and at the same time. And, you know, it's Shonda Rhimes. Well, she's amazing. So, yeah, I, I love it for all of those reasons. Yeah, I feel, feel like it also arrived at exactly the right moment. I mean, in terms of our lockdown and everything, the post-Christmas sort of lull, and then you've got Bridgerton on the horizon, it's there, and you can just, you know, uh, God, I wish they'd drop more than one season in one go. But, you know, we've totally. just been announced, haven't they? They're going to do a second. <laughs> yeah, they're doing a second season. And you know what? Of course, I have seen some of the very well argued political arguments that say, well, it should have been more politically, um, historically accurate. It could mm -hmm. have shown people of colour and the subjugation and the suffering. And yes, it could. And it would have been a different thing. And yes, it could. Yeah. And maybe had it done that, it wouldn't have had the popular success. What I think about this popular success is it really means that no one ever gets to say, I can't cast this black actor now because it wouldn't have been authentic. They just can't say it because they can't get away no. with that lie anymore. And to me, while, yes, it could have been a different series that was historically accurate and we would have shown the repercussions of slavery in a very, very different way, I'm okay. I'm really totally okay. And, of course, I say this as a white woman. And, and I'm, you know, of course I get to say that. And I really acknowledge that privilege when I say it. But I'm okay with it doing this because I think it's doing a different job. And I'm also okay with it because my mate, who is one of the more amazing, political, thoughtful women I know, is getting to shine. And that makes me terribly happy. Wonderful, wonderful. Um, our shells will be back in just a moment. 
which I thought I read when I was about 18 or 19, but it turns out I didn't because <laughs> because the original cover, the original book, you know, with the very famous cover and, and we all, you know, I think it's the, the Matisse image. I can't remember anyway. But anyway, that one um, was edited for um, English-speaking audiences, for the English and American publications, and had a lot of the existentialism taken out because they thought we wouldn't get it. Um, so the second sex that I thought I read at 18 or 19 or whenever I read it, I didn't. So uh, what I uh, would like to talk about is the vintage um, edition, which I think came out in 2010, and is amazing because it's got the existentialism back in. And now that I'm studying existentialism um, and where it's applicable to psychotherapy, I have found this book just so delicious. I mean, it, it so speaks to all of the questions now around trans inclusion, around who and what a woman is, around how we perceive ourselves as feminists. Uh, I mean, it's so good on ageing. And this isn't even her book about ageing, but she's still so good on ageing in this one. And, you know, what we're learning now from Simone's letters is how very important she was, not just influential to such, but influential to Merleau-Ponty, which means that we go back to the embodied practice of existentialism, which goes back to yoga, of course, all joined up. Um, and so reading it now, knowing what I do, maybe, oh God, maybe 40 years after I first, you know, tried it and struggled with chunks of it, um, it's just a joy. It's an absolute joy to read her. It's joy because, because she's so ahead of her time and because she's so thoughtful and because she's so aware. It's also kind of heartbreaking because we've changed so little. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, I talk fast. Did you hear how slow I just went? <laughs> we've changed so little. There's so... We are still so othered as women, and to a degree in this book, but but more so in, in others of hers. You know, she talks about the othering, the othering of people of colour, the othering of older people, the othering of disabled people, the othering of women. Like, we don't fit intersectionally in all of those other categories. Um, she talks about, you know, the white man being the norm, and that's still where we are all this time later, it's still where we are. Um, it's it's why the work that Virago is doing now on, on you know, being even more inclusive is so important. It's why it's why Virago classics actually are really important to remind us that, that, that people were suggesting these things so long ago and we're still not there. So I love, I love Simone's writing. I find her much more accessible than a lot of the existentialists. Um, I find her really thoughtful and really honest. I mean, she talks about where she isn't there yet, which I really like. I read that when I was yeah, young, you know, around about 18 as well, that sort of, you know, yeah. university and those sorts of years. But I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether it is something that young people still turn to today and whether they're finding it as important, um, you know, the way you've talked about it now. I don't know. I don't know. I, my remembrance of being young is I thought that no one could understand me anyway yeah. and the only people I thought <laughs> might might understand me had to be almost identical to me so I doubt 
someone young wouldn't necessarily find it useful now. I have to say it, you know, I'm 58 soon. I'm finding it very useful now. Maybe, maybe it's a book for older people. And that's okay too. You know, we need we need new things too. But we can we can pass them on to our great nieces. And finally, our last question is I ask you to name a woman or a non-binary person whom you admire. Um, who have you picked for us today? I picked Patricia Highsmith. Um Brilliant. now I I, I can't, right. I love Highsmith's writing. I it's interesting, I was listening to Front Row last week or the week before, and they were talking about Highsmith as the person. They were talking about her anti-Semitism. They were talking about the complex and difficult things about her. And, yep, absolutely, they're all true too. Um, and I love Highsmith's writing, and I keep coming back to that. And I love Highsmith for having the courage to, in Carol, The Price of Salt, um, to give it its original title, to write a, uh, a lesbian happy ending when God knows we weren't allowed those. <laughs> We're still hardly ever allowed those. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, it's so rare. It's so rare. We still have to get killed off or break up or discover that we're really straight after all. Um, yeah, uh, Patricia Highsmith, I think, is clean and sharp and rigorous in her writing and that is vital in the novel but oh god it's it's overweeningly vital in the short story so to have a collection of stories by Highsmith with a really good cover as well very good cover work um is just thrilling and uh yeah so I'm very excited to read this um I only got the book last week so I haven't yet and it's a massive tome so that's so this is the this is the new Virago. Ah, yeah, this, 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 this is the, yeah, the new Virago Classics Edition. Um, it's, I mean, just just you know, it, you just flick through it. The Snail Watcher, and then if you, yeah. yeah, and of course, if you do know anything about her, this is a woman who carried snails in her handbag. So you know this. Okay, so look, I have a Patricia Heightsmith story, which I'll share with you because it's such a it's such a tiny thing. For about six months, um, back in 1988, I was the office dog's body at Bloomsbury. And Bloomsbury was moderately newish then and doing really thrilling and brand new. And they were, they were like the hot young baby on the block. And, um, and authors would come in and there was lots of famous ones. And uh, one very, very famous author um, who shall be nameless because he was a complete ass. Um, I... Uh, <laughs> I, I was so the dog's body that I mostly worked in the basement and at lunchtime I got to sit on reception. So I was, I was, I was you know, reception oh. cover. Yeah. <laughs> so, so that's how dog's body I was. Um, and and, and it, was, it was a six-month temp job. It was, the, it was the only time I ever had anything that was like, like a proper job in my life. Um, but, you know, no, no sick pay, no holiday pay, just, just, just work in the basement. Anyway, this very, very famous person walked in, waved his arm at me very peremptorily and said, tell Nigel I'm here and walked upstairs. And I'm not even doing his accent because that would give it away as well. So there were, there were authors like that, absolutely. But once this woman walked in and she was very small and kind of compact and not glossy at all. And she stood in front of the desk and she said with this little North American, perhaps Canadian accent, uh, please, can you tell uh, Liz Calder that Pat Highsmith is here? And I just went, oh, of course I can. Partly because 
I mean, I kind of want to cry as I say this. I mean, even then, this is when they were this is when they were publishing Carol under her name. You know, even then, she she was she was the woman who'd written Ripley, and I knew what they were doing with Carol. It was so thrilling. But she wasn't like some of those people. She didn't behave like everyone should know who she was. She was, I, you know, I already knew some of the stories about her. So she didn't behave like the stories either. She just stood there and said, please, can you tell Liz that Pat Highsmith is here? And she said it simply and quietly and unassumingly. And I bloody loved her for it. And there are plenty of authors who didn't. Mm. And some who were great and plenty who didn't. And it always made me think, be nice to the person on reception. Be nice to the person on reception. Don't be an <laughs> ass to the person on reception. And I hope I have. I may have been rubbish sometimes when, you know, I just had an editorial meeting and they told me my book was rubbish. Um, but I hope I've always been nice to the person on reception because we remember. Mm. And someone might be not be quite as nice as you and name the name Absolutely, one day, right? right? <laughs> <laughs> do you think uh, I suppose I'm interested as you know I, I'm a huge Highsmith fan myself I wonder do you think her work has had any uh, discernible effect on your own writing or has she been there as a sort of figure of somebody that you've sort of admired and the way that she seems to sort of not let herself be labeled as a particular I mean we all know her as a crime writer but then she wrote you know something like Carol is so different yeah. and um, I don't know she's just, I, I, and I think of you as somebody who like I think I mentioned earlier you know you seem to you're not put off by any sort of genre <laughs> you take on anything you know you're, you're, I don't know I wonder if there's I a, don't know Lucy that's just because that's I'm, I'm not capable of doing anything but the next story in my head um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know I, I, I mean I really don't think so I, I certainly think that um, people who have edited me would have loved it to have rubbed off on me I overwrite my drafts so much and I probably, I'm serious, people do not see my first draft. I do at least two or three edits before I, I give it to an editor, before I give it to my agent. Um, but I, I always overwrite everything. I never shut up, you know, and maybe she did too. You know, maybe maybe what we see, what I perceive to be really clean, really sharp, really mm. rigorous writing was overblown in the first place. And, and what she's really good at is cutting it back. And you know, maybe it's a Raymond Carver story, who knows, but... Yeah, I, I wish she would rub off more. Um, you know, people always talk about Ripley, and I always talk about Carol, but Ripley Underwater, I think, is a phenomenal novel, and it's one that I often recommend to people who might have read a couple of Ripley's, but not that. Um, right. It's one of the lesser-known ones, I feel. It's not one that gets mentioned a lot, Absolutely, and I don't know why, because I think it's so good. Um, but I think, I think people, you know, they often go with what was the most successful movie, <laughs> if, yeah. if, if it, you know, if, and that's fair enough because if you don't have all the time in the world and you really enjoyed something as a film or a telly, you'll go with the book. And if you want to see what the difference was, um, I just yeah, I think it's a great novel, and I think it's one of her best. And it's to do with her clarity and sharpness. And yeah, would that could rub, rub off on me? I'd, I'd love it, and I'm pretty certain the people who work with me would love it too. <laughs> Well, you know, spend some serious time with those short stories and, you know, we can all but hope, right? Yeah. Like, it's a beautiful collection and, yeah, I'm really glad that you mentioned it today because it's a perfect uh, thing to draw our uh, listeners' attention to, I think. Well, thank you so much, Stella. This has been a real pleasure having you on the show. You're really welcome.
Thank you for listening, everyone. Our Shells is brought to you by the team at Virago Press. And special thanks to today's guest, Stella Duffy. And tune in next time for more conversation about books, feminism and culture.